Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the US vetoing a UN resolution put forth by Algeria for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, while offering an alternative draft resolution urging a temporary ceasefire on the condition that all hostages are released. Joining us to discuss the plight of the Palestinians trapped in the crowded enclave at the Egyptian border as the death count approaches 30,000 is Wendy Perlman, a professor of political science and director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies program at Northwestern University. Her books include Violence, Nonviolence and the Palestinian National Movement and Triadic Coercion, Israel's Targeting of States that Host Non-State Actors, and we'll discuss her essay in New Lines magazine, The Erasure of Palestinian Society. Then, with the Trump-led pro-Putin caucus in the House rewarding the murderous Russian dictator while abandoning the victims of his aggression in Ukraine, we will look into the American right's 100 years embrace of dictators and speak with Jacob Halbrun, a senior editor at the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist for The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer at the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic, and we will discuss his latest book out today, America Last, The Right's Century-Long Romance with Foreign Dictators. Then finally, we'll assess the latest historian's President's Day survey and speak with Justin Vaughan, a professor of political science at Coastal Carolina University, who has just conducted the 2024 Presidential Greatness Project Expert Survey, which he has been conducting since 2015. In a politically polarized country, there was an unusual consensus among conservative, independent and liberal historians, all of whom placed Donald Trump as the most polarizing president, who was ranked dead last in 45th place. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate and commercial free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Wendy Perlman, a professor of political science and director of the Middle East and North Africa Studies Program at Northwestern University, her books include Violence, Nonviolence, and the Palestinian National Movement, and Triadic Coercion, Israel's Targeting of States that Host Non-State Actors, and she has an essay at New Lines magazine, The Erasure of Palestinian Society. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wendy Perlman. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And the United States again had to provide Israel with cover by vetoing a UN resolution put forth by Algeria for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Now, now the US did offer an alternative draft resolution urging for a temporary ceasefire on the condition that all hostages are released. And a number of analysts, uh, Wendy, are suggesting that in the U.S. saying that they want a temporary ceasefire conditional to the Israelis not invading Rafah, 
is a break with what has been a consistent U.S. Uh, policy of doing anything that Israel wanted or agreeing with anything that Israel wanted. Do you see that as a major shift? Well, if it is a major shift, it only shows how low the bar is for uh, asking the U.S. to do anything that that stands up to this Israeli onslaught. Um, it's, as far as I'm concerned, far too little, far too late. Uh, we are hearing again and again how the Biden administration seems frustrated with Israel, how President Biden is losing his patience with Netanyahu. I mean, all of this seems absurd to me, that the U.S. has enormous potential political leverage over the state of Israel, political, economic, diplomatic, military. The U.S. gives something like $3.8 billion in aid to Israel every year. Um, during the course of this war, Biden has asked for another $14.5 billion in emergency military aid to Israel, has vetoed now the third UN resolution, uh, essentially giving Israel a blank check. And then we hear that the Biden is a bit frustrated, that it wishes Israel would show more concern for civilian protection, that it would allow in more humanitarian aid. The, the Biden administration cannot, on the one hand, enable, empower, fund, and, and help arm Israel to carry out what everyone is saying is genocidal violence in, in Gaza, and then at the other hand say that they're a bit frustrated that that uh, Israel is, is, is not uh, doing more to protect civilians. So this it has taken the U.S. far, 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 far too long to even articulate the word ceasefire. Millions of people are on the streets all over the world demanding and calling a ceasefire and have been for months. So it is only now that we even hear the US government begin to say the word ceasefire at the same time that they, uh, they condition it with all of these various contingencies and qualifications like temporary ceasefire and veto with the rest of the UN Security Council saving the UK's abstention, pass and endorse and call for as an immediate ceasefire. So this might be a bit of a shift, but in the grand scheme of things, it is, it is really pretty paltry and frankly embarrassing. And what do you think of the optics then, Wendy, of Biden or the US issuing this veto, again, giving Israel cover, which they've been doing now for decades, and essentially isolating themselves. As you mentioned, 13 of the members of the UN Security Council voted with uh, Algeria, with the UK abstaining. But meanwhile, President Biden's out here in LA at a big fundraiser held by Haim Saban, who's very, very pro-Israel, needs to say. So, and then you've got uh, the only Palestinian representative in the House of Representatives, Rashida Tlaib, uh, urging voters in Michigan to abstain. So what do you make of that? Well, I think it's it's a, an absolute dilemma for Biden's re-election prospects that the Biden administration has created itself and that the, the Democratic Party will pay the cost for. Um, I think that there are many, many, um, including millions of Americans of all faiths and backgrounds and, and colors and lifestyles who've gone out into the streets to call for a ceasefire, including the last I saw some 80% of Americans who are in favor of a ceasefire. Uh, for many of them, 
And many of them who previously have voted for the Democratic Party, it is becoming in increasingly difficult to stomach the idea of going to the polls and voting in favor of Biden when, frankly, the Biden administration has made the U.S. complicit in genocidal violence against the Palestinians. So Rashida Tlaib asking people to, to vote, uh, to abstain or vote uncommitted is speaking uh, not only on behalf of the many Arab American voters in Michigan who rightly feel betrayed by the Democratic Party, but for millions of Americans across every state who are going to find it very, very difficult to vote for the Biden administration. That is a, is a dilemma that the Biden administration has created for itself. And no amount of fundraising at this point or, or these you know, other types of campaign rallies and attempts that, uh, that can work under conventional circumstances are going to make American voters forget or overlook the Biden administration's policy on Israel. And as you said, giving cover to Israel, but not only giving cover to Israel, enabling this onslaught. And, and the veto today, the third veto of the UN security resolution, asking for a ceasefire where the US is isolating itself and showing itself you know apart from the community of nations asking simply to stop the violence where the US is saying no we are not in favor of stopping the violence no we are not in favor of an immediate end to killing and starvation of civilians in Gaza essentially the US saying no we prefer that the violence uh, continue we prefer that uh that the, the war continue to move on. We're not ready yet for ceasefire. There haven't been enough Palestinians killed yet to demand an immediate ceasefire. Uh, this is, is shameful. If this is going to go down as, as, a, as a dark, dark moment in American history. And um, I wish, wish that the Biden administration would wake up to it. If they are not moved by the deaths of people in, in the Middle East, if they are not moved by international law and any appeal to human rights and human decency, well, then at least pay attention to your domestic your domestic politics and your own self-interest as a politician to recognize that this is putting your re-election in jeopardy. It's all bewildering to me that it's gotten to this point. But it seems from uh, after the hideous Hamas attack on October the 7th uh, that Biden was very quick. In fact, he went to Israel and embraced Netanyahu and it seems that his calculus was to get on side with the donors, but he didn't predict or didn't recognize that he'd be losing voters, right? And your sense is that he's losing voters a hell of a lot faster than he's gaining donors. Yeah, and I wouldn't actually put this on, on, on donors. I mean, I think that, of course, domestic politics and domestic political pressures are, are many and they are complex, but my own understanding and reading of President Biden is that he's he's really a true believer, that he is a, a true believer in in uh, in the state of Israel and the need for its security, that he is someone who has come of age at a time where uh, his frame of reference is Israel as a, as a state being attacked by other states, fighting for its survival. Um, it's, you know, it's sort of existential uh, battle that he is in many ways the product of a different generation because opinion polls show again and again that younger Americans see Israel in a very different light. They've come of age only knowing Israel um, as an occupying power of the Palestinians and see Israel, um, uh, frankly, in, in, in the wrong. 
in its in its uh, oppressive policies towards Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So I think in many ways Biden is 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 a is a real believer in um, that Israel is is right and Israel we need to we need to stand by Israel um, in ways that is increasingly out of sync with American public opinion. So I wouldn't say it's cynically as searching for for donors. I think his his uh, there's a lot that's coming from his true belief in 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 this that's in some ways impervious to his own advisors who either on on foreign policy ends and foreign policy lines say that this policy of the U.S. is misguided or in domestic political re-election ends is, is, is misguided. So I think that that Biden is is, is really uh, is steering his own course uh, out of conviction. So, Wendy Perlman, let's talk about your essay at New Lines magazine, The Erasure of Palestinian Society. And in many ways, it seems that, I mean, obviously it's often been said that the problem with Israel and Palestine is that there's too much history and not enough geography. But as you point out, the British and then, then following them, the Americans have refused to accept that the driving force behind Palestinian struggle was their refusal to be made strangers in their own land. And we often refer to their terrible leaders and let's face it, the, the leadership in in the Arab and Middle Eastern world is mostly military thugs, medieval monarchs, uh, mafia families, or religious fanatics. But in the case of the Palestinians, you, we keep saying, oh, it's all Arafat's face, it's all her fault, it's all Hamas's fault. But never give the Palestinian people agency. And you're arguing that this is where the real driving force is, is, is amongst ordinary Palestinians themselves. Yes, absolutely. So the essay that I have out in New Lines uh, today is um, an extension or builds upon ideas that I um, tried to present in a special issue to an academic journal that many colleagues and, and I uh, put together last year. The, the uh, academic journal is Middle East Law and Governance, and it was a special issue centered on the theme, recentering Palestinian society in politics. And all of uh, the, the academic articles in this issue share this idea that in too much of conversations about politics, in uh, too many conversations about Palestinian politics, focus on leaders and political organizations. There's a focus on what, whether it was Arafat or Fatah or Hamas or in earlier eras, even the Mufti of Jerusalem, and don't, uh, and don't see that Palestinian society has always been the driving force of the national movement. It's a source of agency. It's a source of resourcefulness. It's a source of creativity. And it is the source of the fundamental demands for self-determination. Um, so my essay sort of tries to look a bit historically over time to see that this, this obsession uh, uh, among, uh, whether it was the British or Israel or the U.S. or other powers in the West, almost an, a fixation on Palestinian leaders uh, almost refuses to see uh, Palestinian society as being the real uh, engine of, of, of Palestinians' national demands. There is a sense that there are certain bad leaders, and if there is violence, it's because leaders are pulling the strings. And if there is, are even nonviolent protests and demonstrations, those have been fomented by leaders who almost are like puppeteers pulling the strings of, of hundreds of thousands or millions of men, women, and children, as if Palestinians don't have their own 
their own minds, their own thinking, their own will, and their own desire to be free. Um, so since October 7th, part of this, um, clearly October 7th was, was a, a uh, you know, heinous acts of violence carried out by a specific political organization, Hamas. But since then, so much of the discourse is so focused on Hamas that it doesn't even see Palestinian civilians in Gaza, that we see in Israel's um, violence targeting civilians, punishing the entire population of Gaza, destroying infrastructure, bombing homes, bombing hospitals, starving the population. It is targeting the population, saying that it is targeting Hamas, that there is this this um, focus so much on organizations and on leaders. And there's a long history of this, not uh, uh, appreciating Palestinians' uh, society, both for its agency and also in recognizing that punishments that are claimed to be punishments targeting organizations and leaders are targeting the population as well. And that is what is so um, egregious in the current the current violence, and that is precisely why a ceasefire is so necessary, and the Biden administration is on the wrong side of history on this one. So just in the last couple of minutes, and uh, Wendy Perlman, do you think that in an effort by Netanyahu and the IDF to destroy and kill all of the Hamas fighters and then move into Rafah, which they promised to do on March the 10th, do you think that in trying to kill Hamas, in effect, they're reviving the driving force behind Palestinian struggle, which is, as you write, their refusal to be made strangers in their own land? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that people in Gaza now are, um, their struggle is simply to not be killed. There's a daily struggle to find bread, to find water. Um, to, to deal with the cold. So the struggle right now, primarily among Palestinians and Gaza is, is simply to survive. But the, the larger point of, of, of the whole idea of trying to eliminate Hamas as a, as a military movement ignores that there will always be some other form of resistance. There is only a political resolution to this conflict. If one political, if one, if one organization or one, uh, group is destroyed and other will, will rise up. And until there is some resolution that allows Palestinians to live with freedom and human rights and dignity in their own homeland, there will always be violence and there will always be struggle. And what we are seeing now in Rafah is the um, intolerable risk of essentially mass forced displacement. That is this risk that some would say of a second Nakba of wanting to force or the risk of forcing millions of people from their homeland, after which we can only guess that Israel will never allow these Palestinians to return to their home, is a, a risk of, of epic, epic proportions. This must end now. Enough is enough. Well, Wendy Perlman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Wendy Perlman, who's a professor of political science and director of the Middle East and North African Studies program at Northwestern University. Her books include Violence, Nonviolence, and the Palestinian National Movement and Triadic Coercion, Israel's Targeting of States that Host Non-State Actors. And she has an essay in New Lines magazine, The Erasure of Palestinian Society. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the American right's 100 years embrace of dictators. Verso <laughs>
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jacob Halbrun, who's a senior editor at the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Centre, a columnist for The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, previously was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic. And his latest book out today is America Last, the Wright's century-long romance with foreign dictators. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Halbrun. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us in the romance with foreign dictators that Trump eschews. Last night on MSNBC, Nancy Pelosi, who'd just come back from the Munich conference, was asked what hold does Putin have over Trump And she said that she thinks it was something to do with finance and that he's expecting some sort of payoff in the future. So how did this happen? How did we end up with the president of the United States and perhaps even a future president of the United States with a malign foreign power having so much influence over uh, the leader of the United States? It's never happened in our history, perhaps you have to go back before the revolution when the, the British had had influence, uh, if not power, over the United States. Uh, this is an extraordinary situation. It's both business dealings that we don't know about and the psychological affinity for dictators, which is most pronounced in Trump's case with the Russian dictator, Vladimir Putin. But Trump has also expressed his admiration for Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un, it's there's no dictator that Trump does not seem unwilling to fawn over. And I think it's because he would like to occupy the same position himself in the United States. Now, in my book, America Last, I try to show that Trump, in fact, is not entirely novel, that there is a tradition of dictator worship on the right extending back to World War One, and that Herbert Hoover, for example, who was the former president in 1938, met with Adolf Hitler in the Reich Chancellery in Berlin about a week before Hitler annexed Austria. And Hoover announced that it would be a good thing if the Nazis were to control Central Europe because they could impose order. And in 1940, at the Republican Convention in July in Philadelphia, Hoover condemned Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and his cabinet officials for denouncing Nazism. He said this kind of dangerous talk had to stop. So there is a long history on the right of coddling and fawning over foreign dictators who they see in some cases as a model for the United States. So that's why, while Trump has taken it to a new extreme, I don't think his behavior is unprecedented. Well, as your book points out, there's a a long history of the rights uh, worship of autocrats. 
Joe McCarthy, of course, defended Nazi war criminals, including uh, Joachim Pfeiffer, the SS general who murdered captured American troops in the Battle of the Bulge. And then <laughs> McCarthy goes to bat for this guy. And then you've got William F. Buckley's praise of Franco and Portugal's dictator Salazar and Chile's Augusto Pinochet, Jean Kirkpatrick's support for Angola's uh, Savimbi, Jerry Falwell's fondness for the leaders of the South African apartheid regime, Pat Buchanan's praise of Hitler as a soldier, soldier, etc., etc. Now you've got all of these right-wing Republicans fawning over Viktor Orban, not just Trump, but uh, Tucker Carlson and the Heritage Foundation. So this is, is, is this in our political DNA or is this, is this a particularly American form of dictator worship? What's the explanation for why a country that's founded on democracy and the rule of law would entertain these affections for dictators? Well, there have always been ambiguous currents in America, and it was, of course, a limited democracy, and an anti-majoritarian one is, is built into it. We have today a Supreme Court that is fairly hostile to rights, and we have an electoral college that is uh, essentially subverting the popular vote. So we are not a full-fledged democracy even today. And obviously, it took decades, if not centuries, for the United States to have as capacious a view of rights as it does today. What you're witnessing with the modern right, which probably shouldn't even be called conservative, it's radical, is an attempt to roll back many of the gains of the past century, including gay rights, including the, the right to vote. They want to turn elections into a mere formality. They want to adopt the Hungarian system of illiberal democracy and transplant it to Washington, D.C. And the Heritage Foundation is quite explicit about that. And when Trump refers to his political opponents as, quote, vermin, unquote, again, we see the kind of language in which liberalism and liberals are demonized, not simply as political opponents, but as enemies of the people. And this is the kind of language that we've seen in Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union that has led to mass purges, concentration camps, and the like. And it is not something that has occurred in the United States, though we, we did incarcerate the, the uh, Japanese Americans during World War II in what were effectively concentration camps. So we do have serious blots on our history, but we've never had someone who ascended to the presidency on an explicitly authoritarian program. That is Trump's unique contribution to American history. And a second term of Trump would obviously see him in a much more emboldened position. And there I truly do believe that he would embark upon a war against the rule of law and a war and a culture war. Well, he's pretty made, it, made it pretty clear that he would become a dictator then uh, and create massive concentration camps, supposedly for so-called illegal aliens. But on the other hand, 
it wouldn't surprise me if he included um, <laughs> people like you and me, anybody who criticizes him. So, but the part about the worship for Putin, which is not just Trump. I mean, Trump's relationship, as Nancy Pelosi alluded to, there's something else there, financial or otherwise, not necessarily ideological. But I, Mike I Johnson, thought, uh, David Frum had a good line. He said, "There's." There's no mystery about what Trump believes, but there is a secret. <laughs> there you go. So, but in terms of uh, Mike Johnson, the Christian nationalist, and the Christian nationalists in this country and the Christo fascist evangelicals, their admiration for, for Putin is based on a delusion. Well, they share a hatred of homosexuals, that's for sure. And and they see him as a champion of the white race, uh, the beleaguered white race. But in terms of Christian family values, and I mean, it's absurd to think. In fact, Mike Johnson's very religious sect, the Baptists, are banned in Russia. So does the fascination that American uh, leaders on the right have with uh, foreign dictators like Hitler and now, now Putin... It doesn't seem to have to be connected to reality. It's almost romantic. There is a romantic element to it, of course, and there was with the fellow travelers on the left as well. I think that the it's never you mean been with Stalin and about, Mao and and, yes. and Castro that kind of leftist worship of dictators. Yes, what we are talking about are political pilgrims who seek a utopia abroad that they can then transplant to the United States. It's delusional. That's why Tucker Carlson is standing in a Moscow supermarket claiming that it's entirely superior to the United States because it's cheaper without acknowledging that the reason it's cheaper is because Russians hardly make any money. It's, it's a fantasy. It's a, they, they see a Potemkin village and want to believe in it. So is this then to do with other things that are not political, like paternalism, order? What's the diagnosis here of the appeal to, for foreign, for dictators or for strong men? I mean, you, you know, Trump is a, is a weak strong man. And anybody that actually met with Hitler was appalled at what a miserable human being and ridiculous person he was. These people are never the way that they're projected. But nevertheless, people worship them, and uh, I'm just wondering why. Well, they're only as strong as their followers. And in surrounding Trump, he picks people that he can exploit and that are grifters like himself. It, you know, it's no accident that Steve Bannon has ended up in a legal predicament for, for bilking uh, Americans, you know, with his border wall project. Um, and there is some kind of a desire to invest qualities in a, in a supreme leader. I think because it creates a more reassuring world for you. If you're living in an authoritarian system, you have a lot fewer choices. You're, you know what you're supposed to say. You know what you're, how you're supposed to behave. It removes some of the anxiety from life for the average person. And then you couple that with there is substantial resentment among Trump's followers. We know that. 
That's why they thrill to his announcements that he's going to enact retribution on those who have betrayed him in the United States. He's essentially creating a country in which his people are on top and get to wield the knout against their enemies. It's not a, it's, he wants to go after the blue states. I mean, if you look at what Stephen Miller, who is his, his immigration guru, has been saying, is that they're going to take the National Guard from Virginia and send it into blue states like Maryland to, to hunt down immigrants. Well, they're having a, a gathering on Saturday, the CPAC conference that's um, outside of Washington this Saturday. Trump will be a keynote speaker at it, but they'll also have Steve Bannon, who you just mentioned, uh, Sebastian Gorka, the Hungarian fascist. They'll also have Tommy Turberville, who just praised Tucker Carlson on, on the uh, Senate floor, saying that Putin was a great guy and Putin really wants, wants peace because that's what he told Tucker Carlson. But there's also, they're going to also feature J.D. Vance, and of course he's one of the strident opponents of aid to Ukraine, along with the libertarian Rand Paul, who personally carried a secret message from Donald Trump to Vladimir Putin, which he handed to Putin in the Kremlin. Um, what's the appeal of these other, others, you know, like J.D. Vance and uh, in particular, is backed by Peter Thiel, who essentially bought him that Senate seat. What's the story with these new, younger generation of right-wing Republicans? What's their ideology or their affection for Putin based upon? Their ideology is make America great again. They have the finger to the wind. They know that the base does not like foreign interventions, that the Iraq war has discredited the use of American power abroad, and they have tapped into that to argue for a return to a fortress America. It's not one that's isolationist, but one that's unilateralist and can, is not a member of international institutions that does not believe in allies. It's an American America that can fend for itself. This is now the reigning doctrine in the GOP. It's the older establishment Republicans like Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney who remain staunch Atlanticists who believe in alliances in Asia and are not prepared to topple the international system. When you're talking about Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, these guys are prepared to return to a pre-1941 United States. It led to disaster then and it would lead to disaster once more. So, in other words, they're, they're perfectly happy to have Putin win and to help elect Trump, uh, who would, first thing he'd do would be hand Ukraine over to Putin for reasons, again, that Nancy Pelosi hinted at. Then the war in Ukraine would become a European war. And then you'd have Article 5 countries being attacked by Putin, which would then require the United States to step in. I mean, th these are analogies. Not necessarily, because, because Trump wouldn't have to formally withdraw from NATO, but he could oh, just stay so in the just, Oval Office. That, so they just let Putin roll into Europe. 
Uh, if Why indeed. not? Because from, from their perspective, it would be a sphere of influence for Putin that he could establish order, and the United States wouldn't have to bother with supporting these pesky countries. They, they're, they're, not, they're not interested in supporting democracies in the Baltic states. Sure. But what about the Chinese? They don't seem to have the same affection for China as they do for uh, Putin. No, but it seems unlikely that Trump would defend Taiwan either. He, in his comments, he's, he's made it pretty clear that um, he, he, wouldn't, he does not seem prepared to defend Taiwan. And my guess is that if Trump became president, he would set about pulling out troops out of South Korea and Japan. Well, just to get a photo op with Kim Jong-un, right? Sure. I mean, he could get some cosmetic agreement that actually didn't mean anything in substance. Right. I think that's yeah. what would occur. I mean, Trump is very undisciplined, impetuous. Uh, the only reason that he wanted to have a, a peace deal in the Middle East was so that he could win the Nobel Prize, like Barack Obama did. Right. Well... At the end of the day, though, just to, to finish up here, we don't want to be in the situation of, de of defending American militarism and saying we need to fight all these wars abroad, which are unpopular, and certainly the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war soured many Americans, understandably, on intervention. So what is the, the message that should be coming from Biden? I mean, he's really failed to explain, for example money that goes to Ukraine. The money that goes to Ukraine for, for weapons is all spent here in the United States, at least 90% of it. So, And these same Republicans like Mike Johnson and company who oppose aid to Ukraine will also automatically vote for the military-industrial complex and for endless rising defense budgets. So it's all the same. The money goes to the military-industrial complex. So on the one hand, they throw money at the Pentagon. On the other hand, they're complaining about money going to Ukraine, which in fact goes to the Pentagon or goes to the contractors. So none of it makes any sense, and I don't understand why Biden hasn't you know, made a stronger case. But at the end of the day, there has to be a good argument as to why the United States still has to hold the line without getting into Iraq and Afghanistan misadventures. Well, Biden made two mistakes initially. One was not to arm the Ukrainians sufficiently. The other is he's, he's never delivered an Oval Office address explaining what the stakes were in Ukraine and why it's different from Afghanistan and Iraq. And the, the difference is palpable and, and easy to understand, which is that we don't need to send American troops to Ukraine. They are defending themselves. They do not want American troops. All they want are arms which are manufactured in the United States. The money, most of this money in this aid package, the 60 billion that Biden is desperately pleading for Congress to pass will be spent in the United States. It's both a moral and strategic interest to help Ukraine stop Vladimir Putin from making further encroachments in Europe. If he conquers Ukraine, he will use its natural resources and its population, and he will use its territory as a base from which to threaten Poland, Romania, and the Baltic states. It would be an enormous triumph for him and a debacle for the West. Add in Trump as presidency and NATO 
would be finished and Russia would be a superpower again. Well, I thank you for joining us and for your new book, uh, America Last, The Right Century-Long Romance with Foreign Dictators. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Halbrun, who is a senior editor at the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist for The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, and previously he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic. And his latest book out today is America Last, The Right's Century-Long Romance with Foreign Dictators. We're going to take a brief station break and back, assessing the latest historian's President's Day surveys that found Donald Trump dead last in 45th place. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Justin Vaughan, a professor of political science at Coastal Carolina University, who has just conducted the 2024 Presidential Greatness Project Expert Survey, which he has been conducting since 2015. Welcome to Background Briefing, Justin Vaughan. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And... uh, In this incredibly politically polarized country that we live in, uh, Justin, there was an unusual consensus amongst uh, all of the historians, conservatives, independents, and liberals, who found that Donald Trump was the most polarizing president, and he's been ranked dead last in 45th place. So that seems to be something that not everyone agrees on, but certainly it's something that Donald Trump's supporters are going to have to explain. But what has been the response? Do you know? I mean, Fox News didn't even well, mention that he was dead last. No, that, that, I, I heard about that. Uh, uh, certain, certainly, there, while there is a consensus among the experts who took our survey, that, ex, the, that consensus does not exist in the electorate uh, or even among the um, media universe. And so um, uh, I think there are people who, when they see these kinds of surveys, they, you know, will immediately look to how their favorite president um, uh, did, whether it's a historical figure or a current president. And then depending on, on how their person did, they will decide if the, the survey was uh, legitimate or not. And so I think there are plenty of Trump uh, proponents who are unhappy with the the outcome, and I, I, on one hand, I understand why they're unhappy. They'd like their, their guy to do better. They like there, there are reasons why they like him. Um, uh, but uh, you know, the reaction has been kind of what you'd expect. Um, you know, the um, the people who don't like President Trump see it as evidence they're right. The people who don't, who like President Trump, see it as evidence of a kind of social disconnect between the two sides of America, and so on. Right, but how do you explain this disconnect between historians and the American people? You know, Donald Trump could well be uh, the next president, uh, and he certainly controls sure. 
the Republican Party, and he does have a lot of support. So what's the explanation there? Is it some form of anti-intellectualism, or are you historians out of touch with the American people? Well, I think that uh, they're looking at different things, right? I think that when when a voter is looking at, and, and it's not just President Trump, President Biden, President Obama, President Bush, whichever, they're looking at, do I like this person's politics? Do I like the way they talk to me? Do I like the things that they promised or maybe that they, or the specific policies that they fought for or accomplished? But I think when you have political scientists or historians or other, other scholars that are assessing the greatness of a president in their term vis-a-vis the other presidents, they're looking not at the kind of polit- the individual political and ideological dynamics, but they're looking at what was the impact of this person on the institution, the presidency? Did they lead, lead the nation through a crisis? Um, were they a great, kind of a great military leader that has, you know, that helped lead the nation to uh, victory in an important war? Uh, did they avoid scandals? Um, you know, wh- what was their relationship to kind of the rule of law or to kind of democratic norms? Those are those are different kinds of issues. And I think that um, one of the things that I would I would say probably to most to most people who are dis- disappointed with how President Trump fared in the survey are that is that many of the very things that those folks like about President Trump are reasons why the experts rated him um, poorly. Right. That idea of kind of taking on the institution, taking on the D.C. establishment, um, behaving uh, in a way that is kind of consistent with what is uh, his voters want, but inconsistent with presidential norms um, uh, that on one hand endeared him to his voters, but also, um, you know, led to many, I think, scholars viewing him um, uh, unfavorably. So could this be, though, that the American people or, you know, up to half of the American people have s- sort of changed over the years, whether this has to do with education or the lack thereof i mean when your latest survey has abraham lincoln in number one place followed by franklin roosevelt and then george washington now Mm -hmm. lincoln of course is famous for his extraordinary eloquence and speeches uh and for saving the union which is a (laughs) something of great significance i would say Sure. Roosevelt, in effect, saved American capitalism from the crash uh, of the economy and rebuilt mm-hmm. America and took America to victory through World War II. And George Washington, of course, is the founding father. Mm-hmm. These people have, have been revered over the years, but are they becoming less relevant than somebody like Donald Trump, kind of the Trump wrecking crew, if you will, is the new standard, the new norm? I wouldn't say it's a new norm. I'll say that for most of these people, um, you know, for for a, a, a political scientist like myself that studies the American presidency, I think a lot about George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt. But I think for most of these, for most Americans, they're picture they're, they're individuals whose faces are on dollar bills or pennies or Mount Rushmore, or, you know, um, and that that you know we we uh, don't think about them as, as much, right? Um, and instead, the presidents of today are much more in their immediate kind of frame of reference. The other thing I'll say is that, and this has been ongoing for the last few decades, but we're I, what I would assume is the peak of kind of partisan polarization today, where we're at a level where um, 
your political affiliation is, you know, a person's political affiliation has become among the most important parts of their identity. And that's not, that's something that wasn't true a half century ago. You know, in the 1950s, maybe people were Republicans, maybe people were Democrats. It was not even the top five most important things about them. Um, and today it's, um, are, it's, it's core to many individuals' identities. And so, um, and to, and to the point that you see a rise in, in what, uh, scholars call affective polarization or affective polarization, where not only are we, you know, kind of diehard partisans for our team, but we want to see bad things happen to the other team. We think the other team is made up of bad people. And so it, ha- and it happens on both sides. I think the, the politics of the last several years and kind of January 6th really drew a, a, a focus on the Republican side of it. But there's similarly polarized attitudes on the on the left in terms of how much they like their leaders, how much they despise Republicans, how much they think Republican voters are bad and so on. Well, but when you talk about the contemporary situation, the most recent presidents in the survey, are Biden, who's in 14th place, mm-hmm. uh, Obama, who's in seventh place, and sure. George W. Bush, I'm trying to find out where he is. I should know this off the top of my head, but he is uh, 32. 32. So at least Biden and Obama are up there. That's right. And they're recent presidents. So. Uh, oh yeah, and so and so I want to distinguish between kind of how scholars will look at at the presidents and how regular voters look at the presidents. And so and so certainly scholars are also voters, and they also have personal preferences. But I think for the most part. When they participate in exercises like the survey, they've got their expert hat on and not necessarily their Democrat or Republican hat on. Um, but, uh, but voters don't have an expert hat, right? They, they just wear their Democrat hat or they just wear their Republican hat. And so they um, they will uh, make their decisions about the individual presidents based on based on that. And so I think that, you know, if, if we did a, a survey of, of of the public and presidential greatness that, you know, um, we would see perfectly polarized opinions on both Donald Trump and on Joe Biden, and they both probably would come in somewhere in the middle because half the country would love one and half the country would hate the other one and vice versa. So the survey is conducted by 154 historians, right? And and they cover the political spectrum, right, from conservative to independent to liberal. Yeah. So, and they're not just historians. We actually, the problem, there's more political scientists than historians. But we mm-hmm. we we sent the survey out to political scientists, historians. There's communication scholars there. Basically, people who have recently published on presidential politics or are members of associations related to the professional study of presidential politics. And so, um, uh, but yeah. So we sent out a survey. We had responses from Republicans and Democrats. You might guess there's more Democrats represented than Republicans, which is true of, I think, higher education. And so um, I think it's a good reflection of the population of people who are professionally studying the presidency. But it it definitely is more of a left of center group than of a perfectly centrist group. However, like I said, I think that most of these experts, while they're individuals that have their own political preferences, when they when they do this, they're they're thinking about um the uh, about the institution in a scholarly way. So someone like Ronald Reagan, for example, he he is not beloved by Democrats, you know, to, to as an understatement. And and yet he wasn't at the bottom of this survey. He wasn't 
as high up as some might have rated him and certainly as, as high as our Republican respondents rated him. But, um, but you know, even the Democratic um, uh, respondents will realize that he was an impactful president. Right. Well, of course, the number one person is uh, Abraham Lincoln, who's <laughs> the founder of the Republican Party, right? Uh, That's right. Which, the, but uh, ironically, the, de- the Republican respondents have George Washington as number one. Right. But I mean, uh, it's very, very close, right? But but it's kind of funny, right? And and of course, many historians have argued recently that Ronald Reagan, let alone uh, Abraham Lincoln, wouldn't recognize Donald Trump's Republican Party today. Yeah, cer- certainly the makeup of the Republican coalition and the, the kinds of public policies that the part- Republican Party, you know, um, uh, embraced uh, in the 1980s are very different than what uh, what the Republican Party today and Donald Trump embraces. Um, yeah, definitely there's been a, a, a evo- I don't know if evolution is the right way, but there's been a significant change in the nature of the Republican Party over the course of the, uh, the last, you know, 40 years. So what explains the ranking of Bill Clinton? I mean, it seems like both liberals and conservatives He's he's in uh, number ten, right? Tenth place. Uh, I think he's twelve. But 12. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah the, one of the things that's interesting is some of the most when we look at the the, the polarized results um, and we see like the biggest difference between Republicans and Democratic respondents. Um, most of the people where there's the biggest difference are recent presidents, right? Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama. Um, and Bill Clinton somehow escapes that. And I'll be honest with you, I don't have an answer for it. Um, I, I'm, when, when we first started analyzing the results after the survey fielded, my colleague, as one of my things my colleague and I talked about was like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder why, why, why Bill Clinton kind of um, isn't as polarizing as he, he used to be. And mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know the answer, but I will agree with you that it's curious. Well, just in closing, then, the one thing that's consistent, though, is who's at the bottom now that Donald Trump is at the very bottom in in 45th place. But Andrew Johnson and James Buchanan are right down there with him, right? Buchanan has always been considered a a catastrophe, the pre-Civil War Mm -hmm. president. I guess he, in a way, his main distinction, perhaps, is, is that he's America's first gay president, right? Or, <laughs> well, I, I don't know if there's evidence of that or not. I think he was the last bachelor president. Well, okay, but, um, confirmed bachelor. And as they so, say. Uh, right. yeah, yeah. And so, I, I I have no expertise or knowledge of any of that. I won't wade into that conversation. But right. um, <laughs> I'll say that uh, that the people who are at the bottom of the list, with the exception of kind of poor uh, William Henry Harrison, who only was able to be president for a month, the people at the bottom of that list um, tend to have historical reputations that were sullied by their, you know, activity or inactivity concerning slavery and the civil war and civil rights. Um, and then, and then Donald Trump, who, um, is, uh, and, and I think, you know, people can ask themselves, uh, if it's appropriate that that's the company that Donald Trump is, is keeping, I think different people and probably that'd be a good predictor on how somebody's going to vote in November, if they think that's fair or not. Well, of course, the world is a very different place in terms sure. of its attitudes towards race and racism. I mean, it was okay to yeah. be racist up till what, you know, about the 1960s, yeah. right? 
Well, and, and that's one of the reasons, one of the interesting things that we've seen in the survey over the last nine years that we've been doing this um, project is uh, that Ed, Andrew Jackson and Woodrow Wilson have both steadily declined. And it's not like, I mean, Andrew, well, Andrew Jackson was president in the 1830s. It's not like we've learned anything new about him. Um, and it's not like the 1830s were this heyday of progressive attitudes towards race. Um, but so nothing about him has changed and nothing about the time in which he was president has changed similarly for Woodrow Wilson, but the values of, of scholars and kind of the civic and civic leaders has changed. And so we see with Woodrow Wilson, not, not only him falling down the ranks, but you know, his name being removed from um, schools and honor honors that, you know, used to be, um, associated with them and it, as a as a contemporary repudiation for um the the beliefs and actions and words that um you know he he engaged in a century ago right which by contemporary standards were incredibly racist yeah by yeah, by, yeah that's exactly right that today where it is a reckoning that you know those things that were were, were said or done are unacceptable today and so even if in the time in which it happened maybe those viewpoints were common and i think for both jackson and wilson you can make an argument that even then they were not um that uh uh that that's not a good enough excuse right if everybody was doing it back then it doesn't mean we have to forgive them for it today right well justin vaughn i thank you very much for joining us here today yeah my pleasure thank you very much ian and again, I've been speaking with Justin Vaughan, who's a professor of political science at Coastal Carolina University, who has just conducted the 2024 Presidential Greatness Project Expert Survey, which he has been conducting since 2015. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by